Hi, everyone. It's great seeing you all. Hope you are having a great uh, weekend so far. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in this room and everywhere. Um, I hope you have a meaningful day as you get to honor uh, your mothers in various ways. And, and I also want to acknowledge um, that uh, this day may be a difficult day for some of us uh, for various reasons um, because of your situation in your, in your families. And um, I that really, really acknowledge that. It's not always the happiest day for everyone. And I hope you know that if you're in that uh, situation that we think of you, you're not forgotten. And, and we pray that God will bring his comfort uh, and his presence as uh, evidence of his love for you um, during this time. Uh, we are uh, continuing on in the book of Galatians uh, in chapter 4. Um, in really no time, we'll be um, finishing this book. So um, I'm grateful for uh, the Lord's guidance uh, during this time. And may we get to finish strong as we learn more about uh, God's unconditional grace um, towards us through this book. Uh, so if you could turn with me to chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. I'll be uh, reading it for us, and then we'll pray uh, just one more time quickly and uh, jump right into our time of the message. Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Here's God's word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless uh, elementary uh, principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid you, I may have labored over you in, in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have, then, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. It's a word of the Lord. I'll just pray one more time before we go any further. Lord, uh, thank you again for this time, God. I, I pray that your presence may be felt during this time. May your Holy Spirit open up all of our hearts here so we can uh, really receive this word of yours as yours and be transformed by it. 
God, we rely on you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And may your Holy Spirit um, truly um, do his, his work of illumination in our hearts. God, help me uh, to deliver and uh, not add or subtract, or subtract from any, anything uh, that you want to say to us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's going to our time together uh, in our uh, message. Uh, three points as usual. And those are, first, beware of the slavery outside the gospel. Second, remember the experience of the gospel. Third, um, heed the truthful voice around us. I, I can't even read my own handwriting. Heed <laughs> the truthful voice around us. And the, the title for this message is How to Stay in the Gospel. As you can kind of tell from the title, uh, Paul will really help us to know how we can uh, stay strong in the gospel as opposed to falling away. So I believe it will be helpful for uh, many of us, if not all of us, who desire to grow in Christ. So let's uh, go in together with that in mind. First, beware of the slavery outside the gospel. Uh, as always, let me just give you a little context so you know where we are in the book. You know, uh, in the previous passages before today's passage, uh, Paul drove home uh, who the Galatians are in Christ. That we learn that they are a part of God's family, and therefore they're the rightful heirs of all of God's blessings. And now that that reality and identity in Christ uh, is not something to be earned by you know human effort, but we've been learning throughout the book that it is by faith alone. It is only by us receiving what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, um, receiving that by faith alone, as opposed to, again, earning it somehow by our own uh, endeavor. And now, so that's what we've been learning so far, and now Paul's going to shift gears quite a bit. And, and you'll realize it's pretty emotional at this point in this uh, part of the letter, it's because he's now uh, moving on from the rather theological and logical argument to more of a personal appeal. He's really appealing to uh, emotion now to persuade them back to the, the gospel. So that's where we are. And with that in mind, let's jump right in to verse 8. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So here Paul you know, brings to mind the misery of uh, the life before the Galatians accepted the gospel message. It's misery because you know, they were pagan worshipers, meaning that you know, they made gods out of you know, anything and everything in the nature, in the created things, and even the mythological you know, figures. And they worship them, thinking that through that, you know, they can somehow gain control over the nature and over their lives. And Paul defines that as slavery uh, because, you know, they slavishly 
offer sacrifices and their, their time and energy uh, to these idols out of fear that if they don't do that, then they will face calamity uh, of some sort in their lives. And Paul goes even further in 1 Corinthians saying that uh, behind these idols is none other than demons and Satan. So we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, 19 through 20, where it says, And what do I imply then that food offered to idols is, is that anything? Or uh, that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice uh, you know, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. That's the, that's the reality for pagan worship or even secularism. And so that is the, the miserable past that Paul reminds um, the Galatians of. And the question at this point is, why is Paul you know, bringing back the past? You know, that's past is past, isn't it? Well, uh, he's doing that because he's about to show us that the Galatians are in, in the, on the verge of repeating the past uh, in their present. So let's go on to understand what that means. Verses 9 through 11, it says this. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. First of all, I want you to notice the phrase in the beginning where it says, to know God and to be known by God. That's Christian life, really, in, in a nutshell, meaning uh, that the word know is, of course, not intellectual knowing only, but it's more relational, deeper knowing. It's about relationship between us and God. What's crucial there is that um, God knowing us comes first because it's about God's grace. When, even when we're rebellious, even when we didn't seek God, God first loved us. He first knew us. And he awakened our hearts and he drew us near to him and praised him for that. And that's Christian life. So now the Paul's argument then is that you know, now that you have this relationship with the one true God as his sons and daughters through Christ, you know, why would you uh, go back to the slavery that you just got out of? That's the argument, right? But if you think about it in this passage, that's an astounding statement. It's a very interesting statement because if you read verse 10 and in the whole context of Galatians, uh, you know that Galatians are not going back to their pagan past. Rather, um, the, the false teachers are promoting the, or, or uh, proposing to them to uh, go to the Jewish religion. It's not pagan religion, but it's, it's more so Jewish uh, system. And more specifically, in verse 10, uh, you know, there just to clarify, Paul is not saying that these special days and months in the Old Testament are inherently bad. Uh, but what is bad is legalism, uh, meaning that you're observing 
you know, these special days to, you know, make God owe you a good life and even salvation. That's legalism, right? You're doing things to make God do things that you want, not for his glory, but yours. So that's what Paul is saying. And therefore, what Paul's thinking here is that he is putting the Jewish religion, Jewish legalism, and the paganism in the same category. That's what's happening here. Meaning you're doing religious things, whether to one true God or to pagan idols, to demons rather, uh, you're doing that so that nothing terrible would happen in your life or you know, that God will give you, you know, prosperity in your life. And therefore, both in paganism and you know, Jewish religion, you, know, you are enslaved in the same category there. And you see, that's why Paul is using the word that we encountered last week, namely the elements or elementary principles of the world. And we saw that in Greek thinking, the word elements, uh, you know, refer to the, the building blocks of the universe, right? The earth, air, uh, fire, and water. But to apply that biblically, you know, we saw that uh, these are the created things that God created for us to rule over, to use, to glorify God. But instead, what Paul is saying here is that in paganism and in Jewish religion, in Jewish legalism, uh, you are rather ruled by these things. You are enslaved. And you do that to seek your own glory as opposed to glorifying God. And by the way, just to you know, press that even further, uh, in verse 10, you know, days and months uh, in Judaism are based on planets in the sky. You know, they are the created things, the elements. So you get that. So therefore, Paul is saying in, in all of this is, Galatians, do not listen to the, the, the sayings of the false teachers. Do not follow the program of legalism because that is same as paganism. You are enslaving yourself and you'll be as hopeless as you were when you were pagans. So don't do that. He's appealing to them. And here, what I want you to notice is this, as you understand what Paul is saying here, is you know, how clever and even scary you know, demons and Satan are in their effort to keep us in bondage, in, in, in spiritual bondage. You see that because we established that paganism is essentially you know, demonic worship. Meaning, I think it's obvious and it's not surprising for us to understand that the false religions and you know, materialism, such as to money and careers and, and so on, are of course you know, sources of enslavement. You know, I think that's easy to see. But what's a different level than that understanding is how you know, demons and Satan can use God's holy laws and you know, our spiritual activities to enslave us. That's a scary thing. Even now, as we participate in you know, worship of God, that Satan can use this to make us worship him by using this for our own glory and to make us slaves to what we do. So let me ask you a few questions to um, perhaps help you understand this in our context. Two questions. 
the qu question number one is, why do you come to church? Why do you come to uh, church services and church meetings in, in our church? Is that because, you know, I want to receive God's grace and, and enjoy Him more as we worship Him? Or do I go because if I don't, I just feel bad because I feel like I'm not doing my duty. And, and even, even worse, I feel judged by or disapproved by other people. Which reason is it? Second question to ponder over is, you know, if you serve in our church in any capacities, why do you serve? Do I serve because I want to use my resources and my talents to elevate God? Or do I serve because I want to feel better about myself, honestly, and prove my worth by using what I have to offer? Think about these questions because that may determine whether our hearts are geared towards legalism, which is really Satan's working in our hearts to use even worship of God, one true God, to sin against God? Or is it really true worship? And the point of these questions is not that we must quit church, you know, when we're not perfectly away from legalism. Rather, the point of this question is that we are to have a habit of asking these questions over and over before we go into these spiritual activities. Because if we don't ask these questions to see our motivations, then slowly but surely, you know, we will be enslaved to even these good things that we do in church. And the clear sign of the enslavement or the clear sign of legalism is that you lose joy in worshiping God and in serving God's people. You lose joy. But instead, if we constantly ask ourselves of the, the true motivation, motivations behind these things, then you know, we will repent and renew our hearts before we do these things so that we can truly enjoy what we do and truly worship God and uh, again be joyful. And that's really my heart for us, for our church, as we you know, lay our foundations during this time. Why do we do what we do? Second, remember the experience of the gospel. So we just saw that Paul is uh, trying to convince the Galatians to stay with his gospel because the, the, the realm outside of the gospel is slavery. And now the second reason why we are to, or how we are to stay in the gospel is that we are to remember the experience of the gospel. So let's see what he it, what it means by that. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no, no wrong. Uh, this verse is really essentially the, the summary uh, thesis of, of this paragraph, uh, meaning you know, he wants them to become as he is, uh, who is you know, enslaved to nothing. He's free, uh, especially towards the, the Jewish religious rules. He's free. 
So become like Paul. And then when he says that he has become as they are, what he means by that is that he has become like the Gentiles you know, who do not you know, normally follow Jewish laws or rules. So in other words, he's simply saying uh, to, again, not listen to the false teachers and fall into uh, the legalism, but they are to remain in the gospel where they're free, where they're not slaves because they have received Christ's righteousness by faith alone, not by working. So now, you know, with that in mind, he's going to uh, really try to drive home that point and also try to keep them with them and his gospel uh, by appealing to uh, their, the personal relationship that Paul and they share. And just to give you a heads up, he's going to get really personal here and very emotional even rather. So let's go on. Please follow with me. Verse 13 and 14, he says this. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So basically, we, we see that the Galatians accepted Paul and his gospel with open arms you know, when they first met. I mean, we don't know, to be honest, uh, all the details of what's, what, what happened in their first encounter, but apparently, you know, Paul has some you know, physical problem, uh, probably likely an eye problem, as we'll see in a moment. But that problem somehow gave Paul an opportunity to uh, meet the Galatians for the first time and share uh, the gospel with them. And, and now, the, a little context here is that the eye problem in the ancient world apparently uh, was regarded as a demon possession of some sort. Uh, but instead we see that uh, instead of rejecting Paul for this problem of his, uh, the Galatians, you know, they welcomed Paul and, and they had him preach the gospel to them and they eventually accepted the gospel for themselves. So Paul is saying, Man, you guys were so kind to me. You guys blessed me. You guys didn't discriminate me for my problem. You accepted me. And verse 15, he says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Again, Paul's just reminiscing. Hey, where, where's your blessing? Where's uh, the, the kindness? Because the extent of your love and kindness to me was that you even gouged out your own eyes uh, and, and given that to me to mend my eye problem. And you see, that's why scholars say he had eye problem because this expression was not common, but Paul had to use something about eyes uh, to explain the situation. So uh, we, we speculate that it was an eye problem, though it's not that important. But you see that. that. That's what's happening here. That's what Paul is saying. He's going back to the first time that they met. You guys were so great to me when you received the gospel. We shared that love and brotherly affection. So what Paul is doing is telling them to remember, remember the time when they accepted the gospel. Because you know, that the moment of their acceptance was not a just dry experience, but rather because of the 
the Holy Spirit working, they showed you know, irrational love and kindness to Paul. And, and, and as they remember those feelings and experience in their hearts, in their memories, you know, they will be reminded of how real the gospel was when they experienced it. And from there, you know, they will remain in the gospel as Paul um, wants them to. So the lesson here is this, that we can take from this uh, account, is that just like what Paul is appealing to here in, in Galatians' lives, our faith, our faith is never just a mental agreement to certain doctrines in the church, in the Bible, although that's important. You know, it's important to agree and believe um, with a sober mind the truth of the death, death and resurrection of Jesus. We know that. You believe that. That's important. And yet, that has to be coupled with the real experience, your senses, your, your emotion even, and your, your mind. It has to be engaged. It has to be real human experience that you can recount, that you can look back to later. And, and as we do that, as we remember, as we bring that to remembrance, um, it will help us, it will strengthen our faith as we s- get to see how real the gospel is, that we actually touched and experienced the gospel. And that's what remembrance does, because Christianity is about experience. Not just experience, but it is experience for sure, alongside of other aspects. Go to the next slide. Um, you know, I like to listen to some uh, various podcasts when I drive. I uh, just don't want to waste time. I just, I just hate wasting time. So I just listen to a lot of different things when I drive. And um, there's one interview that I listened to for the past couple of days, and it totally blew my mind. Like, like even yesterday, I was finishing up the interview in, in, the, in the podcast, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. So this was, a, this was an interview um, with this history professor named uh, Molly Wharton, and this is so interesting. She, so he's a, she's a, again, history professor at UNC, Chapel Hill, and, and she got all her degrees from Yale and you know, became a very prominent scholar and author about American religions. And you can tell from the way she talks, she's a very smart and well-read person. Uh, but you can also tell from her stories and her backgrounds that you know, she's probably one of the least likely person to become a Christian because her family was thoroughly secular. Uh, and for her, you know, Christianity was just a mere scholarly subject to study you know, with the ob- objectivity and you know, scientific inquiry. Uh, but it's not something that she wanted to embrace for herself. You know? So for 40 plus years, she rejected you know, Christianity, but she only studied as an you know, intellectual uh, journey. And she, in fact, wrote a very prominent uh, book uh, on Christianity uh, some time ago that was pretty objective and very solid and yet very critical of Christianity. So that's where she was. Uh, but then she shares how there were a series of questions about 
you know, Christianity that she had to write about for her article or something for New York Times, I think. So she started interviewing these, you know, pastors, uh, like P Pastor J.D. Greer in North Carolina and Tim Keller and people like that. And that led to, you know, deeper dive into different, you know, topics about Christianity. And finally, in that journey, you know, after many historical researches, she, as a historian, had to admit that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. She had to admit it to, be, to have integrity in her scholarly credential. And, and she realized that her life has now has to change now because she admitted that historically this is true. So she got baptized just this past year and, and, and you know, she started attending the church in North Carolina. And just, just imagine with me, I was listening to this whole talk and I was literally at this point when she was talking about her conversion experience, I literally had my mouth open while I was driving like, oh my gosh. This is crazy. How, how this has happened? Again, in my mind, she's the one of the least likely persons to become a Christian, but she became a Christian. And as I was, you know, marveling at, at this story, I really appreciated what she said towards the end of the interview. You know, here is a very accomplished uh, person in her career and in her academia, right? And yet, she was so humble and vulnerable enough to say that. She's still struggling with many intellectual doubts about Christianity and that she needs to grow a lot. She has a lot of catch-up to do about Christianity. But as she was wrestling with all these doubts and even like questioning, you know, is my conversion real? Uh, one thing that she says uh, has grounded her in, her in her journey is the fact that, you know, when she became a Christian, uh, their birth a longing to read the Bible through the lens of faith. And she says that was a miracle that cannot be explained by, you know, history and, you know, scholarship. Because all, all her life, she never desired God, desired Bible. But now she realized that she craves the Bible. She craves the stories of Jesus in the Gospels especially. And that fact comforted her saying, thinking, believing that that's a sign that her faith is real. So you see, you know, both her, both Molly and the Galatians, you know, they were to look back at their experience with Christianity to strengthen their faith and keep fighting their good fight. And, and, and so should we. So the question for us is, if you're a Christian, what's your story? And here, I'm not looking for, we're not looking for, you know, some dramatic stories. I think some people think that way when you think of, like, testimonies. But no, no, no. We are all made differently. Our stories are different. Some may have some dynamic storyline, but while others may not, and that's fine. But what's important is that all believers must have a point or a period, however long, in their journey you know, in which they understood and embraced the gospel message as their own. And as they recount, you know, what they experienced, you know, in, in that process, you know, like they were to think about how they felt and, and what they did when they finally admitted that 
Jesus was their Lord and Savior. And, and that strengthens their faith as they think about that. And for me, I think I shared this a couple of times already, but um, when I was becoming a Christian, the two themes that were, that were important were sense of purpose in life and the sense of being loved. And when I found the answers to, to both themes, I was blown away. I was so captivated, and I could do anything for God. And even now, even as I was preparing for the sermon, as I thought about that, that just really energized me. It's like, oh my gosh, why am I so worried about you know, all these peripheral things when God loves me and that's all I need in my life? And I have purpose that's so clear you know, before me. I have God, and that's all I need. So again, what is your story? Just think about it. Again, we're not to, you know, looking for drama here. It's looking for just a simple story that will really humble you because you see God loves you that much, and he pursued after you. What was your experience? Think of, think of bring back, remember, your experience with the gospel. That's how you stay in the gospel. And third and last, third way to stay in the gospel is this. Heed the truthful voice around us. Heed the truthful voice around us. So again, Paul once more will urge the Galatians to remain with them in his gospel. And he will do that by exposing the motives of the false teachers. So follow with me. Verse 16, he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul is telling the truth about the gospel, but apparently the false teachers label Paul uh, you know, their enemy for, for doing that. So the question is, you know, which one of them is right, Paul or the false teachers? Verse 17, Paul says this, They, the false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you, you may make much of them. Meaning that the them, the false teachers, are you know, apparently very persuasive through uh, flattery, and the, the Galatians are buying it. I mean, we are tempted to fl flattery all the time. You know, when people say nice things about us, you know, we get tempted. But Paul is seeing through their motive. He's saying that they do not have genuine interest in the Galatians' welfare, well-being. But they're just trying to please them so that they can uh, shut them out from away from Paul and so, so that they can you know, please them instead and subscribe to their faulty theology. It's very transactional. It's not genuine. But even, you know, like before we read this verse, I think we can... Um, see that that impure motive from our vantage point too, meaning that you know, just thinking about their theology, right? You know how your spirituality depends on how well you observe, you know, these festivals and rules. Uh, what that means is that the the false teachers will honor you and accept you only when you perform well. But instead, if you fail, if you do not perform as well they will mistreat you. It's very, again, transactional. There's no grace. It's about, you know, how you perform. And Paul is seeing through that. 
they are not genuinely caring about the Galatians when they say nice, say nice things about the Galatians. In verse 18, he explains further. It says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. Meaning that you know, nothing's wrong with you know, affirming people, people. Nothing's wrong with saying nice things about others. Um, as long as, first, you know, they should have good motives. And second, you should say nice things consistently, you know, not when you're face-to-face with them, but you change words when you're you know, facing their back. You've got to be consistent, and you've got to have good motives. And apparently, the false teachers you know, failed at both points. But Paul is different in verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. you know, meaning that Paul you know, genuinely cares about them to the point that he compares himself to a mother uh, and, and the Galatians as her children. That he would labor tirelessly, he would give himself all the way in order to bring back to the fundamentals of the gospel and to help them mature in Christ. And verse 20, he finishes off this way. You know, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Meaning that you know, he wants to be with them because he loves them, and he wants to use the tone of you know, warmth and friendship because he loves them, and yet, as it is, he cannot hide uh, godly frustration about them because they are in the wrong. They are about to lose the gospel. So out of love, he has to rebuke them. What we see here is this. Here's the point about this, about this um, uh, last paragraph. That in order for us to stay in the gospel, uh, the Galatians and we need people like Paul you know, who can tell us the truth out of his genuine care for us. We need the truth speakers in our lives to grow as Christians. And here to clarify, this does not mean that that person, the truth speaker, should tell the truth, truth you know, insensitively and even harshly you know, all the time. That's not what it means, I believe. Please notice that Paul here uh, constantly you know, reminds the Galatians of the relationship that they share. You know, he just keeps saying, hey, you know me. <laughs> we share this experience together. You know where I'm coming from. He, he does that. And also, please notice that he, um, you know, in this paragraph, also in, in, the, in the letter as a whole, he constantly goes between you know, the, the warm tone, uh, you know, saying things like little children, uh, to you know, being very harsh at, at, at times. He even called them foolish in, in verse 3. What that means is, whoever speaks the truth has to do that in the context of an established relationship. And he or she has to do that wisely. Wisely and do that in a relationship. Because if they do that, then the person that they speak truth to will trust you know, him or her, and they will know that they are coming from care and love for them, 
and it will be easier for them to accept the rebuke. And that's wisdom. And Paul displays that in this book. But nonetheless, we need those who speak truth to us out of care for us. Yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, uh, in my neighborhood, uh, you know, there was a little uh, donut hangout, some yummy, yummy donuts that I enjoyed with Seth and Natalie and Deb. It was in one of our uh, neighbors' driveway, so we were able to meet, you know, some new neighbors as well as some old ones. We got to catch up with them, and and we had to talk to, in particular, this one older neighbor and, and her husband. And it was a very pleasant conversation. We really loved um, just catching up with them that way. And at one point, while, while we were talking, you know, she saw you know Natalie. It was I think it was her, her first time seeing her in person, and and she really adored her. And she you know um, that handed Natalie over to her, and she you know held her in her arms, and and she said this, you know, out of this adoration, she said, you know, we lived in this neighborhood you know, for 30 plus years now. And, and we really believe that it takes a village to raise a child. So please let us know, you know, if there's anything we can do to help to raise your child. It takes a village to raise a child. And I really appreciated that. You know, I think they're really kind people and uh, I really appreciate their heart. And uh, we will definitely... Um, you know, uh, walk with them during our parenting journey. Uh, but it really is true. You know, it really takes a village to raise a child. You know, I think that's been our experience with Seth and Natalie in our neighborhood. You know, as, as they got to know some of these neighbors and other parents and other kids, uh, we can see, you know, they're becoming more well-rounded and, you know, being, being more sociable, uh, even though that could be considered, you know, pandemic children. <laughs> But I'm really, really, really appreciative of our neighborhood. We're really privileged in that. But I share this because this truth about how it takes a village to raise a child is not just truth for our you know, physical parenting. I think it's really true spiritually too. That it takes a village to raise a child spiritually. Meaning it takes the church village, the church community, to raise us, children, spiritual children. Meaning that for each one of us, including myself, you know, it takes everyone's interest and willingness to invest in one another and, and you know, love and care for each other. And, and, and as they grow, as we grow in relationships and as we get to trust each other through that established relationship with one another, we shall also grow in telling truth to each other. But again, wisely. But again, truth is needed. And as I thought about that, in our church context, I'm just so blessed to be really honest with you. I think from my vantage point, I really appreciate where we are as a church. Meaning, I think about maybe two years ago when we were in much transition, and you know, some of us may not have known each other as well. But but over the years, I feel that we have grown a bit deeper, you know, through different you know uh, 
opportunities and events and worshiping together and getting to know each other. Uh, so that I think there's more trust. I think there's more, um, you know, deeper relationship. And I really appreciate. It. I don't. I really don't take that for granted. And I hope you don't either. And my charge for us, my encouragement as your pastor is that we keep going, that we continue to cultivate that trust and relationship among us, which takes time. And as we do that, we do become a village <laughs> to raise one another, that we do speak truth and in, in care for their spiritual health. And as we do that, we do that wisely, and we will grow. And without that, we will not grow. So my charge for us is that let's do it together because, again, my conviction is that it does take a village to raise us to where God wants us to be. Let's pray together. As we always do, um, I want to encourage us to just meditate upon the word that we just heard so that God would aid us to uh, process what we heard so that it really goes deeper into our hearts. And I think in this passage, uh, there are perhaps several things that we could take home with. Uh, you know, those are the th three um, main ways that Paul gave us to, you know, how to stay in the gospel, how to stay in the faith even. How do we do that? And God gave us these tools. And I wonder which one uh, may speak to uh, you more in your different circumstances, you know, seasons of your life. You know, first, um, do we need to be reminded that it is slavery if we want to give our hearts to anything other than the gospel? Anything and everything will enslave us if we do not stay awake and ask ourselves this questions that we asked earlier. Just think about that. And second, Paul reminds us of how we need to remember the experience that we had. Uh, you know, John calls it first love, right? The, the work that we did at first because we're so touched by the gospel. Even if that was a simple mental uh, shift, that still matters. Again, we're not talking about you know, dramatic things here alone, but just don't think about any change in you that you experienced because that's a miracle from God. Would you uh, please remember, would you please pick out those experiences that are real uh, right now? Could you remember those points in your life? And thirdly, How can we grow as a community? And can you maybe even remember and try to think of people that you're thankful for because they uh, do have a relationship with you and they do speak truth to you? Who may that be? And Or do you need to seek out, perhaps? Or do you yourself uh, need to grow to be more upfront in a very loving and wise way? And there are different ways to apply that. Could we process this together? You know, how is God, um, you know, speaking to you right now?
and I think all in all, as we think about this, I think it is really God's heart of love towards us that He is speaking these words to us, to our church right now. That He wants us to think about these things so we stay strong and grow. So let's pray together.